So I have the honor right now of welcoming a friend and mentor, Dr. Jennifer Ratner-Rosenhagen, to introduce Dr. Wolf. Dr. Ratner-Rosenhagen is the Merle Curdy and Vilas Borgesi Distinguished Achievement Professor of History here at University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she's been teaching for more than two decades. She's the author of numerous uh, books on intellectual and cultural history. She is a humanist and a model at our university of hospitality and the practice of loving one's neighbor. So join me in welcoming Dr. Jennifer Ratner-Rosenhagen. Thank you, Dan. That is the highest compliment that you could give me is to call me a humanist. I'm serious. I'm, I mean, this is, this is true. Okay, so thank you, Dan, and thanks to the Upper House staff. I have to say that time and time again, I am just gobsmacked um, at what you all are pulling off over here. Uh, it's really remarkable programming. Tonight is just a little bit, a little example of the kind of work that they're doing, and I commend you for it. So my hunch is that everyone here in the audience has come out tonight because you already know who Miroslav Volf is. And so you do not need me to remind you that he is one of the most prominent uh, theologians of our day. So my job tonight is pretty easy because I just have to remind you of that. Miroslav Volf is the Henry B. Wright Professor of Systematic, Systematic Theology and the founding director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at the Yale Divinity School. And their mission is to envision a world where deep reflection on the good life is central to education and public discourse. And I rather think that that's what Upper House, um, this would be a good, a good motto for Upper House, too, because it's quite exactly what they're doing. Wolf is the author of Exclusion and Embrace, a Theological Exploration of Identity, Otherness, and Reconciliation from 1996, which Christianity Today included among its 100 most influential religious books of the 20th century. He's also the author of Free of Charge, Give, Giving and Forgiving in a Culture Stripped of Grace, 2005, The End of Memory, Remembering Rightly in a Violent World of 2006, Allah, A Christian Response, 2011, Flourishing, Why We Need Religion in a Globalized World of 2016, and most recently, A Life Worth Living, or Life Worth Living, A Guide to What Matters Most of 2023. And that's the Cliff Notes version, just so you know. These titles give you a mere snapshot of the sorts of themes that Wolf uh, addresses in his work. All, in some ways, are a meditation on the work that theology can do in our world to envision and foster peace and reconciliation and help to bridge divides caused by violent conflict, exclusion, and injustice. What one encounters in Wolf's writing, thinking, and being is a version of faith that is active in the world, that welcomes dialogue and appreci appreciation of other faith traditions, and that sees pluralism not just as an is, but also as an ought. I've had the great pleasure of keeping company with Wolf's texts and lectures over the last weeks, and I'd like to share with you just two of the many quotations that I found very um, arresting and enlivening and ennobling. The first one, and by the way, I, I tried to make sure that he, in fact, said these quotes. <laughs> But um, I could not verify it. But uh, Dan thinks these sound like both quotes. So you, you can let us know. Okay, but this is what happens when you're famous. 
Yeah, people want to attribute a quote to you because it gives it more heft. Okay, so here's the first quote that I really like that is attributed to Miroslav Volf. Um, quote, there is no space in which worship should not take place, no time when it should not occur, and no activity through which it should not happen. The second one attributed to Miroslav Volf is there is something deeply hypocritical about praying for a problem you are unwilling to resolve. I think he said these. <laughs> to me, what is so arresting, and this I'm sure about, what is so arresting is to put those two together and you have something of the picture of his work and what is so extraordinary about it. On the one hand, a vision of the world that is sacred, that is enchanted, that is shot through with divine mystery and majesty, also one in which the only prayers that we have a moral right to pray are the ones that we must seek to answer ourselves. So thanks not only to you in the audience who prayed that Miroslav Wolf would grace us with his luminous presence here in Madison, but we have Upper House to thank for answering our prayers. Join me in welcoming Miroslav Wolf and what does it mean to love someone? Good evening to everyone. What a wonderful introduction. Thank you so much. Uh, could I, I should have recorded it and played before before I speak elsewhere. <laughs> I'm not sure about the first quote, uh, I, uh, but but it, it seems seems right to me. <laughs> the, the other one uh, I have encountered so many times because it was a tweet that I sent, and uh, I think it's the most widely shared of my tweets, uh, and it has cost me, uh, and it has given me things. So <laughs> uh, I'm delighted to be here. Um, I have been named as a systematic theologian, and I think that's my title. I these days try to avoid it. <laughs> no, no worries, Jennifer. Uh, if I want, uh, you know, there was a time when uh, in airplanes, you you would speak with your folks who sit next to you. And if I didn't want to speak with somebody, I would introduce myself as a professor of systematic theology. And, and that was pretty much the end of <laughs> the conversation. <laughs> and if I wanted to invite a conversation, then uh, I would say, well, they pay me these big bucks at Yale to answer the question. And then I would say a question that might be of interest uh, uh, to them. <laughs> um, but it really is what I'm trying to do, is to kind of think through our questions that move us as human beings, what it means to live a life, our ordinary lives that we live. It's so marvelous to be here and to share this uh, with you, this concern also with, with you. Um, I'm grateful very much to the organizers for the invitation. Um, I had marvelous time this morning and this noon. I have no idea what some of you who were there thought, but I enjoyed this. <laughs> and uh, I am, I'm really grateful to uh, Stephen Brown, the benefactor who made all of this possible. So thank you to all of you. And now, what does it mean to love someone? And I think I need to be some kind of an oracle of wisdom to be able to answer this question. So I don't want to disappoint you. So I'm going to lower your expectation. Here, I'll try to say a few thoughts, have few thoughts, but and speak about four kinds of things that 
paths that are, in fact, love and how to relate uh, those. Okay. So, uh, in the Gospels, in the Christian tradition, uh, two greatest commandments are, as Jesus famously said, you should love God and love God with all that is in you uh, and love your neighbor as yourself. And as we all know, loving God is uh, for those of us who are monotheists, not just Christians, supreme uh, commandment because God is simply supreme. And because uh, character of God who loves uh, is what gives value to uh, love as such. But it turns out that love of neighbor ends up being often a test of our love toward God. As in First John, it says, how can you say that you love God whom you do not see, but not love a neighbor whom do you, you do see? So the command to love is then primarily oriented, not the greatest, but primarily oriented toward neighbor as a form of love of God. Um, and it's the greatest because it is the greatest of all values that we, that we have. You can put it in, in those terms that it's a really measure, measuring rod for all other values. Some philosophers like Charles Taylor would call this hyper good. So it's not just one of the many goods that we subscribe to, we embrace, but it is the good that makes the goodness for all other goods. Um, Nietzsche used to speak in terms of tables of value, which are those fundamental things that define what is valuable to us. That's what, what love is in the Christian tradition. And that means that we need to somehow know what love is. What does it mean to love uh, other people? What does it mean also to love ourselves? What does it mean to love God? And if you ask that question, what does it mean to love someone? Um, often you would get um, uh, the answer kind of shrug of shoulders, but everybody knows that. You just feel it, and then you kind of have a Nike definition of love. Just do it, you know. And often uh, there is a kind of impression that people who ask what is love are trying to evade actually loving <laughs> so they can spend time discussing and complicating the, the matters. As it turns out, everything that we feel is love isn't necessarily love or isn't the best kind of love and isn't alone what love is. And that's what I want to talk about to you this evening. And I want to uh, name the four different kinds of love. Um, and I know that there is a... There's a book by that uh, title, uh, not quite exactly. It's a C.S. Lewis's uh, title. I haven't actually consulted it before I wrote my, my talk, and I read that book way back, and some of you will, in Q&A, tell me how much I'm off from C.S. Lewis and whether that's a good or bad uh, thing. At any rate, here are my four, no matter, irrespective of what, um, what C.S. Lewis uh, has said. So kind of definitions or what the love of uh, what love is. Um, uh, first form of love that we, that we encounter is something like, you can describe it like attraction to something that gives us pleasure. I love flowerless, flowerless chocolate cake. 
Or I don't know how many of you have tasted those Vienna specialty Mozart Kugeln, which have a kind of marzipan uh, in it uh, and then chocolate core. They're just absolutely uh, amazing things. And you uh, want those because you want to devour them. <laughs> they give you a certain kind of uh, pleasure. And that's a kind of uh, love, but it has relatively limited domain, right? <laughs> in terms of what we love in this kind of way, except that we sometimes actually try to expand that domain. And so much so, one of my um, uh, heroes, uh, theological heroes, but heroes with lots of warts. Uh, I'm, I'm a kind of... Uh, I think most of us are crooked as human beings, cro cro uh, crooked timber of humanity, as Kant has uh, put it. And some of it, some of us, us are a little bit more than others. Uh, and Martin Luther, uh, the, the great theologian, was 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 pretty bad example in many domains. Nonetheless, he had some really important things uh, things to say. And he, uh, in commentary, his commentary on John, he said, many people love God as lice love a vagabond. Far from being, inter far from being interested in his, meaning God's, welfare, their one concern is to feed on him and suck his blood. <laughs> um, it's pretty crass, right? And vivid. But you recognize the kind of sentiment. The God is here simply to serve, to satisfy my own pleasure and whims. Some see lovemaking, having sex the same way, simply seeking to satisfy craving for sexual pleasure. And love is attraction. I think some, uh, uh, that something that uh, something that gives me pleasure is right, provided that, that we don't use other people as mere means to achieve our presence, uh, uh, our, our pleasure, which is what people do with God, which is what people do often also with one another. But it's a kind of uh, first step, in a sense, of loving, being attracted to and enjoying that which gives us pleasure. Definition two, love is seeking to ascend towards something that is greater than I am. That is to say, loving something that is greater so that I can make an upward journey toward that. And you find that in Greek thought um, very much. Uh, so it dominates ancient Greek uh, thinking. I don't want to enter a debate whether this is the exclusive or primarily account of Greek understanding of love. It is certainly one, one important. And this is something like that. Love is a striving, an aspiration of the lower toward the higher, of the unformed toward the form, of the, that which isn't or isn't in full reality to that toward uh, what is of appearance toward essence of ignorance toward knowledge. It's the entire movement then of uh, reality is ascending toward kind of more fullness of, of being. And in contrast to God, the entire universe is a great chain in which the lower always strives for and is attracted to the higher 
which never turns back but strives in turn upward toward that which is still higher. This process continues up to the deity, which itself, and I'm quoting here Shalev, which in itself does not love, but represents the eternally resting and unifying goal of all these manifold movements of love. So it's a great chain of being going from the lowest up to the highest of movement uh, upward. Now, it, what, what's common with these two first forms of love is that in both cases, lovers seek to satisfy a need that they have, either a need for pleasure or need to ascend to something that is larger than they themselves. And um, I want to contrast this now with the two forms of love in which people do not seek to satisfy a need, their own need, but rather to satisfy a need of somebody else. Uh, I would call these two higher forms of, of love, except that our ascent toward God is really ascent toward that which makes us or turns us, so to speak, around in the Christian tradition and sends us back to attend to the needs of others. So, three. Um, love seeks to take care of the needs of others. It seeks to enhance them. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus famously tells the story of the Good Samaritan. I'll read it. Uh, you all probably know it, but it's always good to remind ourselves of, these, of that text. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers, who stripped him, beat him, and took off, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he, the priest, saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on by the other side. But the Samaritan, while traveling, came upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, treating them with oil and wine. Then he put him on his animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took two out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spent. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the response is clear. It's the one who helped, and therefore command is go, and you do like. To love is to help a person, any person, in need. To love is to help even the person who not just isn't particularly close to you and is in need, but the person with whom, if you're a Democrat who's Republican, <laughs> uh, or vice versa. Um, if you are if you are a Croatian, the the person who is the Serbian, to help them, any person one chances upon, 
And here the command is to love in the kind of the kind that doesn't discriminate in helping. It does not depend either on my attachment to the person in need or to my interest in future return from that person. Therefore, it's kind of decoupled from anything I might receive in return from that person. So love here is doing good, not just wishing well, but actually sacrificially doing good irrespective of who that person is. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have uh, what in the Christian tradition has, be called, uh, has been called special loves. There is this general love that covers everyone, but we have a particular kinds of obligations toward those who are close to us. Closeness of this obligation doesn't uh, exclude necessarily breadth of the one that is being mentioned here. Doing uh, good, irrespective of who that person is. Now, um, we're fairly familiar with that thought, nothing particularly surprising, though something rather difficult uh, about it, um, to be ready, actually, to do a loving of this sort. Now, the definition for is a little bit less common these days, and I think it's really important to keep in mind. Um, and that is to love, I want to put it this way, to love is to cherish the self of the other person or a thing, for instance, like a flower, not just to help them. So you find that in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Gospel of Luke tells the story of the Good Samaritan immediately after Jesus had said that the twofold command to love God and love neighbor, they are together the greatest command that we have or there to the one is the greatest, and second is like unto him, with the, uh, unto it, which seems like a little bit of contradiction in terms, but the idea is uh, that we shouldn't really strictly rank them, but one entails the other, love of God and love of uh, neighbor. So in Gospel of Luke, the story of the Good Samaritan illustrates the command what, how to love one's neighbor. Now, in other Gospels, we don't have the story of the Good Samaritan. In, Gospel of Mar in Matthew's Gospel, there are no stories that illustrate this. In the Gospel of, uh, of Mark, there is a story like this. And the story is the story of the poor widow, to which we will come shortly. But first, what the Jesus does, he tells what loving God and neighbor in particular does not mean. And what he mentions there is a person who loves the seeds of honor on the banquets, who speak long prayers so that people would uh, be impressed, uh, who loves to be greeted in public uh, spaces, and interestingly enough, who devour the possessions of widows. That's going to prepare you for the next uh, section about, about the, the, the widow. And you can see that the person who are, persons who are 
all into themselves, right? Uh, they're all into other people being into them as well, <laughs> if they're into themselves. And they also will find any means available to them in order to feed uh, their, their, uh, their egos in order to boost them. And often the weakest members of society become the victims precisely of such people because they're easiest to extract the goods. And widow uh, and orphan in the Hebrew Bible are typical examples of just such persons. Now, so that's, that's what, this, uh, the, what love isn't, according to Gospel of, of Mark. And then comes this story of the widow's offering, which illustrates what love is. And we see it in Mark 12, Mark 12 41 to 44. Um, and Jesus uh, reports, it reports then Jesus' reaction after observing people put money into temple treasury. So now we are in a situation in the temple, um, and he's observing what people do that come to the temple. You're familiar, some of you at least, with the story. Jesus sat down, excuse me, Jesus sat down opposite of the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into treasury. It's not a very kind thing to do, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you sit and somebody offering plate is going and you kind of look what's... And it seems a little bit intrusive, but uh, Jesus uh, seems not to often pay attention to the proper morals of behavior. Uh, we'll, we'll teach him um, <laughs> if, he, if he could to certain manners. Um, so at any rate, he was watching. And the poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, I don't know about you, but it's a kind of disturbing story to me. Um, you almost wish she didn't do that. You almost wish uh, she were more prudent about how she was spending. You wish that the money out of the treasury was given to her, but that wouldn't quite work because uh, Jesus said that the scribes and Pharisees do exactly the, the opposite. Um, but nonetheless, what, what's interesting in this is that her love is not measured by the amount of benefit it produces, it confirms upon persons in need. If that were the case, if love were measured by the amount of benefit it confers, she would have given just that penny, which was the worthless amount of love in that case. And Jesus said, no, it's measured by the level of sacrifice of the lover, not by the level of benefit that the lover confers. 
sacrifice, character of sacrifice is indicator that in giving, in loving, one is not concerned for oneself, but also, in this case, primarily with others. And that one is loving them as one loves, in her case, actually more than one loves oneself. What's the good of such love? That's now the question that Max Scheler asked when he's reading this passage. Why? And his response is, and that's the kind of lesson too from the widow. What's important, he says, it's not utility of love's help, but the beauty of the loving act itself. Its own loving act is its own purpose, in a sense. Now, he'll complexify that. Let me explain a bit. The value of love lies in the act of love itself. That's his claim. It seems like a strange idea. And yet, you can see that a loving act recognizes or even confers nobility on that which is the object of love. Just by cherishing it, I value it, I express the value and elevate that person who I love in this way. But at the same time, it testifies also to the nobility of the person who acts in a loving way. Now, that may be more difficult to, to follow. The extreme example that Shaler gives is Francis of Assisi. Now I'm going to scandalize you even more than with, uh, with, <laughs> with a video, but possibly that might take us uh, somewhere. Uh, the, the, the example that, that Shaler gives is of one of the greatest lovers in Christian sense of love of all time, which is Francis of Assisi. Francis used to hiss the festering wounds of lepers, treating those who were considered the refuse of society as creatures of inestimable value. There's a conferring of love on them and value on them, and there is a retroactive affirmation of the nobility and greatness of the soul which does just that. I think there is a lesson also, and maybe not, in the extreme form in which is expressed here in Francis of Assisi, but there is a lesson here for charitable giving. We should not just help people in need. How often do we need it with sense of kind of superiority, with sense of patting ourselves on our backs that we have helped somebody in great need? And suddenly we became important and the entirety of this giving adventure that we are on becomes about us and our self-importance. Sometimes self-righteously, condescendingly, 
we give to others. But if in helping, we actually honor them, seek to honor them, then we will cherish them in the act of help as human beings, as themselves of inestimable value. Now, there's also example in, from ordinary experience of this. And for, to me, I, I'm sure you can come up with, with examples. From, uh, to me, it comes from the fiddler of the roof. Do you love me? I'm your wife. Sorry. <laughs> I know. But do you love me? Do I love him? For 20 years, I've lived with him, fought him, starved with him. 25 years, my bed is his. If that is not love, what is? Then you love me. I suppose I do, Golda says. And I suppose I love you too. What does it matter? Such love. And then both of them sing. It doesn't change a thing, but even after 25 years, it's still nice to know. It doesn't change a thing, and yet I think it changes everything. For such love affirms the self of the person. It's directed to the self of the person, not anything that they might need in order to, to thrive or live. They themselves matter. And it's a sign that one cherishes that person. Perhaps even that one has a kind of unconditional commitment to them. And that's why this kind of love, I think, is worthy of celebration. Now, crucial in the two kinds of love that I've mentioned, both kind of the Samaritan, good Samaritan love and widow kind of love, is that that kind of love does not issue from a need. You recall earlier the first two types of love, they're all based of need. I need something. I need pleasure. I need uh, Mozart Kugel, right? <laughs> I need, uh, need uh, a kind of to ascend. I need to make myself improve myself. And therefore, I invest in loving whatever I, it is that I love. But in this particular two, two particular cases, love does not issue from a need, either the need for pleasure or for ascent. Instead, it issues from a certain kind of abundance. For certain, you can see it the most in, in this poor widow. What kind of self does it you need to be to be able voluntarily to give two last pennies that you have? Where's the sense security? It's almost like she's a queen. Almost like she is sovereign over everything not in need even when she is in dire need. Kind of there's a, and here's Shaler commenting on her, a powerful feeling of security, of strength, of inner salvation, of the invincible fullness of one's own life and existence. All this unites 
into a clear awareness that one is rich enough to share one's being and possessions with others. Love, sacrifice, help, that descend, not ascend, descend into the small world of the small and the weak that springs from a spontaneous overflow of life's force and is accompanied, he argues, with great bliss and deep inner calm. One does not seek something for oneself in love, although there are these kinds of love as well. One gives oneself also in love. Now, Apostle Paul in Philippians writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others better than yourself. I think he means as treat others as if they were more important than you. Whom should you treat this way? Everyone. All of them. Each one of your actually ideal case is should do to the other, to one another mutually that. <laughs> Seek to honor as if they were more important than you. And Paul then explicates that this in form of a, this is both not selfishness, right? But in humility, so selfishness and humility are contrasted. And now he repeats it then again immediately afterward in terms of one's own interests. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, this also is what I added. <laughs> he actually said, but to interests of others. Seems like for him this is almost exclusive. Not sure that we should take it that way, so I helped him out a little bit. <laughs> I helped us me out to, to swallow the, 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 the hard pill <laughs> that he is giving us, possibly. So you, you decide whether it's exclusive or whether you are also included in that commitment to love. I, I think, on the whole, when you look at the tradition, uh, emphasis on the rightness of self-love, if, if my love is to reflect God's love, that means also as I am object of God's love, therefore I should be object also of my own love as other people are objects of God's love as well. But for Paul, this is embodied, and that's where Shaler gets it also, embodied in Christ's agency of coming down. Now, Luther has a very interesting account of who God is and, and, and um the, 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 the glory and absolutely supreme status of God. And the consequence he draws from that, you might say, well, God's going to be full of himself, right? I'm the top guy, right? I, I'm just great, right? And you all should recognize me as great, and then everybody's going to be happy, except you and us. But Luther says, well, since he's the highest, God is the highest, he cannot look up above him. There's nobody there. He cannot look to anybody to the side, left or right. Therefore, he must look down. <laughs> and if God loves anybody, God lo looks down within God and toward ourselves so that the great 
action of God, according to Luther, is the humility of God who comes down precisely in the kinds, from the kind of fullness that Scheler was describing that this widow has had. Except that for widow, it was losing everything, and for God, is losing very little. So you might say widow is this example that embodies in extraordinary way the kind of love that God embodies, and we'll see later that precisely that kind of love is then nourished and glorified and is the form of God's love through us. Paul then speaks, gives an, after he has told Philippians uh, to treat others as if they were more important than you and to attend to their interests, then he says, let the same mind be in you as was in Jesus Christ, and then tells you, gives you that famous um, hymn. Some people think that it was one of the early Christian hymns that Paul appropriated. Other people think that it was actually something that Paul himself composed. Either way, it doesn't matter. He writes, Christ, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and being sound in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. Now, those who study honor and shame in Roman societies, they can see this instead of Christ having a race of honor upward, he's kind of in a race of going shame downward, right? Paul's portrayal of Jesus consists in three progressively degrading positions of social status. Jesus descends in this race of shame from equality to God, which is status one, through the taking on of humanity and the status of a slave, status level two, to public humiliation of death on the cross, which is status level three. And you ask yourself, but why? Why those two last things? Why this kind of Sacrifice, And I, I think the response is that in the world, as in, of the kind in which we live, sometimes, not always, sometimes, a sacrifice of this sort is the highest expression of care for another person that we can give. Now, that's not where the story of Christ ends. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every Name. There is a kind of exaltation that comes, and now you might think, ah, well, that's the reason why he did it, <laughs> right? That's that's what he was, uh, what he was after. And then the Nietzsche critique of Christianity would fall straight into uh, into this because um, uh, everyone who wants to humble himself actually wants to get into glory, according to Nietzsche, right? If somebody wants to humble themselves. Actually, they're looking for their glory. So you, you might read Christ's uh, story in this, in, in this level, in, through this lens, as if he's done something arduous and now he's being rewarded. Or you might read it, read it differently. You might read it that this is the glory of Jesus Christ. This is the glory of love. 
namely that it will go to that, those kinds of lengths in order to help those who are in need. This very service is the elevation. And you have stories of Christ's glorification that's happening on the cross. It's not that it's happening after the cross. John's gospel is very famous uh, about this, which is the same idea, namely that there, you can put it this way, there are two kinds of love. There is a love that dances. Everything is fine in the world. Everything is fine with us and we can dance. But there is also the kind of love that labors because we are broken and the world is broken and that kind of a world needs to be rescued through love. So, what is love? What isn't love? Love is attraction to pleasure and self-improvement is good. But without helping a neighbor in need, love is really not love. Without helping a stranger in need, any stranger, love does not reach as far as love should reach. Without sacrifice, if neighbors and strangers cannot be helped otherwise, love is lesser than it should be. Without cherishing the self of the person, love becomes cold and it le loses its soul. As I was working on this lecture, I was once driving on the freeway and it was one of those rainy days uh, and you couldn't see very far and I was driving and somebody was frustrated with me because I was in the left-hand lane, wanted to go uh, faster, although you couldn't go much faster. There was a car from which I, I sought to keep distance so that I don't slam into the car. It's not, and they, they kind of cut my way and inserted themselves so that I had to hit on brakes. And I, my reaction was uh, I kind of flared up about to this idiot. <laughs> And then I remember this lecture that I was writing. <laughs> you idiot. And it thought occurred to me that that's very much in line with what Emmanuel Levinas uh, used to teach us all and still his writings too. On the face of every human being, there is a question written there by the finger of God. Do you love me? The answer to this changes everything. Thank you. So, um, Dr. Wolf, I was thinking one way to engage particularly the two stories that um, you drew, the two parables, um, were to draw some quotes from some um, other thinkers who had also thought on those parables and just get your take on how these connect with what you've talked to us tonight about. So this is um, Martin Luther King Jr. on the Good Samaritan. He says, on the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed 
so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It is not haphazard and superficial. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. What's your reaction to that? Amen. Preach stone, brother. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't put um, a, a kind of a personal responsibility um, uh, at at odds or in in contrast or in tension with necessarily um, a more structural responsibilities. Um, in many domains of our lives, we refuse to do that, and I think we should do that. Uh, we should refuse it also. In the economic domain, we should uh, attempt uh, to create circumstances in which um, uh, the road to Jericho should be safe. Um, and one shouldn't need, but on the other hand, we live in the world where um, uh, the, the, the kind of the, this kind of securing, full securing of the world, securitization of the world, maybe. Maybe not just unachievable, but maybe um, maybe maybe even negative. Um, Huxley's uh, Brave New World it may be a good example of right when when you make sure that virtue occurs and the circumstances are are such that nothing uh, that is out of ordinary uh, and to the detriment of anyone uh, can happen. Now. Please don't take this as uh, n not wanting to care, take care structurally, but we need both uh, elements as present. Do you think there's a, um, a necessary progression from personal to structural? Can you love, the, the, can, you, can you express love in the way King calls us to on the second hand without expressing it um, in the way you talked about here? You know, you can... Uh, I personally think that that uh, that uh, personal agency always take uh, always takes the lead. Uh, all transformations uh, have uh, have occurred via personal uh, means, but on the other hand, there's something like emergence phenomena. There 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 are situations which call and make possible certain forms of individual action, and I want to carefully study. What's the relationship between what we create in terms of uh, patterns and structures of behavior and the kind of effects uh, that we, that we uh, either initiate or result uh, and therefore initiate uh, as person on our own or result uh, from these kinds of circumstances that, uh, that uh, impact us? I, on the whole, uh, 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 in many ways, don't think that we are as free and as sovereign as we uh, often claim to be. Uh, circumstances shape us. Culture shapes us. So, so that uh, I, I've got to have both ways, both things going on at the same time. Okay. Uh, another quote. This is from Marilyn Robinson on the, um, the Poor Widow. And this is, uh, this is from Oprah.com, of all places, but um, it's what I was drawn to. So, um, and I'm, I'm actually trying to think, uh, I have this quote, and I, I just listened to you, and I'm actually trying to think, are these saying the same thing in just slightly different ways, or are these saying different things? So 
Uh, that's the question. So she says, uh, this is after describing um, a, an experience she had and then relaying the parable um, or the story of the poor widow. She says, in the case of the poor widow, it is not the gift that merits praise, mm-hmm. but the courage and the freedom the giver has found, created, sustained herself in the poverty and solitude of her widowed life. Mm-hmm. It's very much on the line. I wish I had that quote um, before my lecture. So, uh, uh, and Marilyn Robinson, of course, uh, has a way of putting things that uh, are absolutely splendid. Um, yeah, I, I think I think she's on the on that same line. I, I um, uh, and 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 you you see the greatness that she articulates uh, in much more nuanced way. The, the greatness of the act uh, itself and what was made um, about what she in her agency and I would say some kind of nobility, uh, a, 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 an amazing sense of sovereignty uh, actually was able to do. And it takes the kind of courage of which Marilyn speaks. Yeah. Beautiful. Great. Okay. Now these are coming from the audience. So first question. What's the difference between love and cherish? Well, you tell me. I'm, 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 this is English language. I, I, might, I may be using it in the wrong, in the wrong way, but uh, I think that the, the cherishing is a mode of, of love, holding particularly dear uh, something. Um, and uh, whereas love can have... Uh, you know, you can out of love, you can you can do stuff and have a certain certain kind of uh, distance uh, without loving, without cherishing. If I do something for somebody; it is an expression of of my love. And this kind of emotional proximity and emotional affirmation of the very being seemed to me to the for the word cherishing to express. But uh, if if there's a better word, uh, you tell me, and I'll I'll use it. Okay, next question. You mention, uh, you mention that we are to love God and love others as we love ourselves. So then if love of self is very low or someone does not love themselves, how can someone, incre- how can someone increase their love of their self so that they can love others? Yeah, so that's, that's a question how one interprets this text, right? Is the love of self uh, a measure of love for the other? Or is love of self uh, being stated here, here as a presupposition of the activity of, of loving? I have always tended to think of it as um, th- that love of self is a measure of love that we are required to show to other people. But there is also something to the observation, psychological uh, uh, observation, that those who cannot accept and cannot love themselves uh, found, find it hard to love others. And that was the point that Shaler made so powerfully with the, uh, with the widow. She had to have a kind of internal sense of strength and, and, and sovereignty in order to, to be able to do uh, that, act of, uh, 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 the, the, that act of love. Uh, so so there, is a, there is a sense in which uh, care of, of the self is important for the the capacity uh, to love. Um, my, my sense is all, all, also always that uh, we love come to love ourselves uh, because we are loved. 
um, we internalize the love that we receive uh, from others. So then again, that returns us back to somebody's capacity to cherish us, uh, our very being. And this is what we do with, uh, with children. And if, when, when we don't, the children themselves cannot find the kind of sufficient strength in their own person in order to be independent a agents. They're always feel threatened uh, by the world uh, and by potential lack that might be, that might be there. So, so I think we, um, we go into communities where we can experience uh, uh, love, uh, affirmation, and, and uh, in those situations, come back to ourselves as always already beloved. Uh, I would want to say that's one of the, one of the um, amazing things about, uh, about faith. Uh, I, in my case, it's a Christian faith. It's, it's you know, I think how much time we spend trying to make ourselves presentable to others so that we would somehow be liked. And as like also affirmed uh, and loved. And there is this one space where I don't have to look in the mirror, get myself uh, okay. Um, I don't have a certain, to have certain tone of muscle. I don't have to do anything. I am loved. And we've all been, most of us, uh, uh, if we were fortunate to have loving parents, we've all been there. You know, the exclamation, nothing matters except that you arrived, right, when the child is born. Uh, I, this is such an incredible gift. Apparently, my nanny exclaimed that when I was born, and I think I, I couldn't have received a better gift than, than this. I've done nothing. Sheer existence. Nothing but existence. And it's love. It's astounding. And we do it, most of us, right? In right kind of circumstances. I, I find that absolutely and and coming being in those kinds of situations where our very being will be affirmed key to our humanity I think which type of love does Jesus have in mind when he says a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you I don't know a little bit of all four <laughs> uh, with probably the, uh, the primary primary being kind of uh help in uh, in need and out of cherishing. But it doesn't seem to me that Jesus wasn't enjoying these disciples, frustrated with them, but uh, also <laughs> a bit of pleasure with them. Uh, he, he liked good uh, good food. Uh, he, there was complaint about him enjoying it too much. Um, right? Um, so it it, it seems seems that it's kind of all all four uh, are there. I think I think it's mainly at least in the Christian tradition, it's mainly how you think of ordering of loves rather than one or or the other. What's what what governs and and what needs to be done in a particular situation? Those are those are some of them are principal decisions which one has priority. Uh, and other ones are prudential decisions, decisions of wisdom in a particular situation, how one not to love. But I think all form are legitimate modes of love. I love Mozart Kugel. <laughs> I have to justify it. No. 
we are creatures, uh, uh, put slightly differently, uh, we're creatures of, of, of pleasure as well. We're mental also uh, for pleasure. And that's, that's absolutely beautiful, a beautiful thing. How do you think about various traditions, uh, perhaps uh, something like Buddhism, that suggest true love is completely detached from the object of love? There is a kind of detachment, right? And that's, that's what, uh, but in a sense, this nobility uh, suggests, right? Um, that that the kind of, if you are always dependent on <laughs> Uh, and not sufficiently free from the object of, of love, you love can morph into a, a kind of captivity, right? You 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 depend on this this loving relationship or, or on giving love. Otherwise, you feel you will lose yourself. You will lose them. You will lose yourself. Um, Kierkegaard in in his uh, is either or uh, when he looks at Faust and Margarita. Uh, he's got uh, some of that dynamic that's going on. The, the, the one is invested so much in the other that when one loses that other, the entire self collapses. Now, now when something like that happens, uh, that that that's an unhealthy form of love. It requires certain kind of detachment for, from the other, certain kind of self standing, so that one can one can truly love. So that's how I uh, kind of incorporate. I think that it, that Buddhist insight. It's not quite true to Buddhism as I understand it, right? I, I think we, we, we should do a bit more than that. And that bit more is what I'm hesitating to, the direction where I'm hesitating to go, because it seems to me that a, a kind of um, my investment in another person uh, is part of what loving relationship actually uh, is so it, th th there may be a difference in definition of what love means between the two traditions. And often, if you uh, s s uh, on the on the kind of um, more more, um, I was going to say superficial, but it's not necessarily superficial. Uh, at some levels, there there are significant overlaps. When you go a little bit deeper down, you will see differences, some kind of some tensions that might arise. Not necessarily full incompatibilities, but uh, and I think it's important to pay attention to the differences. Uh, th this question, I think, comes out of uh, a really authentic place for for a lot of us. Uh, after this talk, it says this fourth type, this, this fourth type of love seems impossible. How can we do it? Well, I mean, if you if you take the extent of that type of love in the widow as uh, as the measure and that everything that's less than that you aren't doing it then it may be very very difficult but if you uh, take the fiddle of the fiddler in the roof you might most of us might be able to go go there right um most of us might be able to uh, and, and most of us in fact do we we have people who we cherish, right? In in a kind of kind of way, them as a person. Um, we've talked today about forgiveness, and sometimes when we when we love, we kind of separate the doer from the deed, right? Uh, they they and 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 cherish the, the because we cherish the doer, we can we can let the deed uh, deed go. 
So uh, I think that kind of love is present in many of our relationships. I think sometimes we we don't we don't um, uh, we don't nurture it uh, enough. We kind of see love more in utilitarian kinds of ways. If I do this, um, that's uh, I'm I'm satisfying this. If I do great amount with the, what what I have. Uh, I have for give great amount I I have loved and it's true that I that I have but um my sense is that especially in in the present moment we do well to rediscover uh how important the person themselves are looking in the eye of a person and loving that person rather than simply doing stuff for them it can often become so mechanical uh, for us and detached, that ends up being then detached in ways that are deeply uh, unsatisfying. You suddenly see yourself as this uh, either either pure servant, right, that, that just uh, trudges along and tries to do something, and pretty soon you're tired uh, tired of that. Uh, the, the discovery of the of the goodness of the very self of the person is is really good for us. So, how should we think about? Um, powerful, perhaps even ill-willed people as our neighbor, and how are we to love them? Don't let them do that to you. <laughs> there is a way in which you love a love a person by not letting them do as be as bad as they want to be. Uh, to what extent one might uh, one should go, especially with grown-ups. Uh, it, it's a matter of uh, of judgment, but it seems to me that um, people have to also. I don't think love is incompatible with setting a boundary, uh, and we do well to set certain kinds of boundaries. Question is always how we do it, with what motivations um, we we do it. But nobody is served if somebody thinks that they can just like John Wayne walked through the town and, uh, you know, with, with the sense of uh, invincibility and do whatever they please. Um, uh, love means staying and keeping somebody in the boundary. We do that with children. We do that with our, with our partners. Uh, we, that's why we have those conversations. Come on, and that—that's not what ought to be happening. <laughs> and doesn't mean that love isn't there. It means that it is there. It's you're fighting for love when one does uh, when one does something like that, depending on how one does it. Going along uh, on that same train of thought, uh, this question: Love seems to be an invitation to transcend evaluations of risk and reward or cost and benefit analysis. But is there a place for reciprocity? What does love look like in relationship, in community, and in communion? So the, there is a there is a, a very important space for mutuality. Um, and Michon construes mutuality as reciprocity. Uh, then, then I'm I I, I can I can go, go very well along. But there is a kind of reciprocity that that is kind of calculating and that actually is inimical to uh, to love watching always on the uh, of how much whether I, whether I've 
been gypped by having done one uh, one time washing the dishes more than somebody than my wife or something like that, right? Uh, or uh, well, you can come up with crazy uh, crazy examples, which all the time there is a kind of a calculating sense. And one, once that happens, you, you sense that the relationship is you're always on the guard uh, in the relationship. It's not, uh, it's not a loving relationship. It's a transactional uh, the thing, and it, it isn't uh, thriving in, in my experience. So, um, and on the other hand, if you have a, a mutual expectation of mutuality, um, I mean, what I quoted there, where Paul says, I think in 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 Paul's epistles, he says the phrase "one another" is mentioned about ninety times. It's one of the the key ecclesiological concepts of Paul that is not recognized as such. <laughs> uh, one anotherness, which is a form of reciprocity, right? But it's reciprocity that's accompanied by unconditional commitment to do what is right toward the other, right? And loving relationship toward uh, the other. Um, you've got to negotiate this. And then we're back again a little bit uh, in, uh, in reciprocity. But um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very much afraid of reducing relationship to calculations of uh, costs and benefits. Then I want to sing, do you love me? Do I love you? <laughs> Why do you think that it is so, that so often the case that the church does not provide people with the key experience you described of being received, accepted, and celebrated for one's existence? How can the church change that? I haven't said that here, but I'm, I'm kind of like a broken record about what I'm going to say right now. Um, I think that the church, we Christians, to us as Christians, to culture more broadly, Jesus Christ has become a moral stranger. And by moral stranger, I mean, if you have two columns, and in one column you wrote, what really matters to you, not by what you say in your self-assessment, but what your, how you spend your time, uh, how you spend your money, if you wrote one column. And then if you wrote on the same issues, what, matter, uh, what matters to Jesus, there would be overlap, but it would be very small. I, I can't help as a Christian to be really worried about that, about myself. So that in varieties of things, the issue that you have read be mentioned, a kind of radical acceptance of the self of a person. Um, I mean, it's all over the, it's visible everywhere that we don't do that. In political domain, probably most visibly, today, but other domains uh, as well. And I, I feel that we are betraying what for me is a source of ultimate value. We're not unique in 
this betrayal. But it's particularly pronounced today. You know, in the 60s, one could write a book, which is my, one of my teachers has written a book together with a, a Catholic colleague of his. The book was written, it, it was entitled Jesus, Yes, Church, No. I even see why that's, that, that might be the case. The church is often not a particularly happy group of uh, folks. You can reject the church and you can accept Christ because Christ stands for really these f fundamental values. Except that today, I don't think that book would sell at all. Title of that book, because most people, as I see, are, are not particularly attracted to the figure of Jesus. And I'll give you an example. I'm not going too long on this thing. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example um, from my own life. So I teach a course at Yale, at the Divinity School. I teach a course called Jesus uh, and Being Human. Jesus and Flourishing, you can call it whatever. Uh, but basically, it's, it's looking at various domains of life and kind of drawing on resources of the Gospels, portrayal of Jesus, uh, thinking, how do I think? And so we, we think about birth, we think about death, we think about work, we uh, think about one of the things we think about is education. And then at one point, I'm teaching it together with, uh, with a colleague uh, of mine. He's got small kids, and, I, and I've just, uh, I, Mira, my, my daughter was uh, two at a time. And we're talking about Jesus and education and so forth. And I think, I don't know whether, whether he drew or, or I came, came first. With, I think Drew came first with the idea. And, said, uh, and he said, well, uh, yeah, I don't know this, but this Jesus relationship to, to children. And then I started thinking, would I let Jesus raise my daughter? And I thought, honestly, no. He wouldn't know how to. And then I think, you are crazy. <laughs> how can you, how can you uh, have a fundamental faith in that life as manifestation of the true nature of humanity and not let that person raise your two-year-old daughter? You're crazy. But if I'm honest with myself, that's what I exactly the thought that occurred to me. And uh, would he know how to deal with uh, pressures of her? Will he get her into Yale or something? <laughs> and if he doesn't think that, well, do, do I want to agree with it? Uh, shouldn't she? Uh, uh, and of course, I think, no, of course she shouldn't. <laughs> I shouldn't force this. This is not the most important thing I think about my education. My parents never cared about that. My parents basically said, you follow Christ, forget about everything. Not forget about it. everything else is secondary. We're happy if you do that. Whatever else you do, it's fine. Even when I came to become professor at Yale, my dad said, well, good, fine. <laughs> Which is exactly how things ought to be. <laughs> Because, because what matters profoundly is not what we have accomplished, achieved uh, in some kind of uh, standards that we generally accept now as the form of achievement. What matters is what kind of humans are we? Are we failing as human beings or are we living life as human beings in a kind of responsible and beautiful 
way. Um, but you see uh, my own ambivalence <laughs> toward Christ. Final question. This is another uh, quote. Um, this is from Les Mis. And there's a, a famous line in one of the songs, to love another person is to see the face of God. Mm. What do you make of that quote? If you're bearers of the image of God, then I think that's right. You see, I'm hesitating a little bit because I, I think I think we are beautiful and and we are just right as mere humans. We, we don't have to be divine to be to be glorious. We don't have to make ourselves into more glorious than we are. We are as human beings. Glorious. That's a deep convictions that I have. And sometimes when I hear uh, see the face of God, I, th I think as if seeing face of a person is not enough, as if I have to see God to somehow cherish the person. And I would want to say that the other person is cherished not because God is somehow in the person, but because that person is loved and created and loved by God, because God has investment in that person, just and such investment in that person I should have, and that creation, creatures in their materiality are, are beautiful as creatures, no matter how they look and who they are, how they um, comport themselves. There's a beauty of mere humanity. I was so moved by Kierkegaard, and he's thinking about, uh, about this question because he, he talks about this uh, little lily. I don't know if you recall that in Upbuilding Discourses. He talks about the little lily in the Sermon on the Mount, and that little lily is worried because, the, because a naughty bird has come to the little lily who is completely um, um, self-unaware, uh, self enjoying uh, her life in the, close to some brook. And the little bird, a naughty bird, came and started talking to her how there are these crown imperial lilies further out where she had flown. And these are amazingly beautiful lilies and always would kind of end the discourse by saying, uh, by, by kind of making the little lily feel uh, inadequate. And pretty soon the little uh, lily uh, wants to become as beautiful as crown imperial. And then there's a whole, uh, the, the little bird uh, pecks around her takes, her, takes her up so that root is there and wants to fly, fly her. They concoct the thing that she would be flown among those crown imperial lilies so she would become also as beautiful and as one of those and she dies right in the process obviously the Kierkegaard uses this to, to say now this lily is more beautifully clothed than Solomon was in his all his glory concept ergo every human being is more beautiful as human being than Solomon was in all his glory. No matter how glorious you make yourself, we make ourselves, we are always less glorious in what we have made ourselves to be than in what we have been created to be. 
I think this is a, this is a revolutionary thing when you think about it. If you if you truly believe it, uh, and and I'm close to believing it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much.